Day, and then in September we'll finish off with Loving Community. When Adele Gabori's neighbors in Worcester, Massachusetts, watched her lawn grow a foot high, they had a local boy mow it down. When her pipes froze in the winter and burst, her neighbors had her water turned off. When the mail spilled out the front door, they called the post office to have it stopped. The only thing the neighbors did not do was to check to see if she was still alive. Police finally broke in the side door of the little blue house and found what they believed to be the 73-year-old woman's remains where she had lain for perhaps four years. Eileen Dugan, once a close friend of Adele's, whose house sits 20 feet away and a master of understatement, said, it's not really a friendly neighborhood. I'm as much to blame as anyone. She was alone, needed someone to talk to, but I was working two jobs and was sick of her coming over at all hours. Eventually, I just stopped answering the door. In 2000, the book Bowling Alone cited statistics over recent decades that family dinners were down 33% and having friends over to your home was down 45%. And this was in 2000 for the previous two decades to that it's only gotten worse. We are more alone than ever before, so what can the church do? In Acts chapter 2, a newly emerged church was having a revolutionary impact on the society that was under Roman occupation. It was a brutal world for them. In this harsh context, the church modeled something so different, so revolutionary, that thousands were trying to figure out how to get in. And so we are going to turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. And this is after Peter's sermon, after Pentecost and Peter's sermon. And then it describes what does a new church do that's been newly formed. And it says those who accepted his, that's Peter's message, were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, let me just put you, us, in this situation, what would we do in Chihuahua Evangelical Free Church if 3,000 new converts came in in one day? How would we feel? Would we be terrified? Nervous? Excited? Finally, we would say, or it's like, oh my gosh, we're going to lose our, our small little cozy intimacy. So how do you disciple 3,000 new believers? Well, the church didn't leave them alone to fend on their own. The church enfolded them into community. How did they do that? How did they pull off what was obviously a huge challenge? Youth for Christ teacher Ajith Fernando, a Sri Lankan, says it is a well-established fact that many psychological problems are solved best within the context of a caring community. Imagine, if you had a caring community, we would have some less depression, less anxiety, less other effects in our society, if only we could take care of one another better. So moving on, Acts 40, verse 42 in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves, there's four things we're going to look at, to the apostles' teaching, 
and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. First one, teaching. Spiritual community needs teaching. We need to be able to understand what who God is, what God is asking and calling us to do. We need to understand kingdom principles. We need to know how do we live these things out. And, you know, you sit and you listen, and that's great, but, you know, one of the best ways to unpack kingdom principles is in a small group. Imagine talking about how to be poor in spirit in your group. So Wednesday night, you sit and you say, what does it really mean? How do we actually become poor in spirit? What is that talking about and how do I make that work in my life? How do I begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What, what exactly does that mean? What would that look like in my everyday life? And being merciful. Where am I not being merciful? Where could I be more merciful? And maybe you hear other people's ideas and it spurs you on to think of ways, but we don't get to talk about that in a big group, do we? We have to kind of just sit and listen and mostly by the time the week is over, we forgot what most of what Sunday was said because our brains can't hold on to all this information. But in a group where you talk about it and you unpack it, you remember and you apply more. To be pure in heart, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? So one of the most effective ways to shape attitudes and to increase Bible knowledge is in a small group. They ask pastors in the survey we're doing of a healthy church. We have eight traits and, and, and they thousands of, play, of, of people in churches and pastors too. And they ask the pastors, if you had a choice and your people could only go to one meeting, would you tell them to come and hear you preach? Or would you tell them to go to your, the small groups that you have in your church? The, the people and the, the pastors, I mean, that answered, I would rather have them come and hear me. Their churches declined at a much more high rate than those who said, I want them in small groups. Those churches increased more often than the ones who thought, I am the one who has to tell them what they need to hear. And so think about that. Are you in a small group? Would that be a place you could really apply spiritual principles? Would you agree that if you could only pick one thing, would that be your one thing? Kind of a hard question for a pastor to ask, but I think it's true. Small groups, number one, include interactive teaching. Not just lecture, but you talk about it. You you understand it with each other's viewpoint, and you figure out how to apply it to your life. So... Where do you get that kind of interactive teaching that discusses life's issues together? And how could your group, if you're in a group, how could your group expand the teaching to include relevant discussion of life questions? Your everyday life, what you're doing. So that's number one, interactive teaching in small groups. We see that in the early church, the apostles' teaching. Number two is fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Spiritual community also needs fellowship, not just interactive teaching. We need to have a relationship with one another. In my surveys and interviews, I have found one of the leading reasons, in fact, the number one leading reason was Pastor Dan's preaching, teaching, and in small groups that they, you came here because of the teaching. But number two was the loving relationships, the community, the people that enfolded you. 
Now, there were some exceptions. There was a few reports. If I came, nobody talked to me. So I hope that we can make sure that never happens again. I brought my, my brother-in-law or son-in-law or father-in-law or some relative, and no one talked to them either. But mostly, they said, I like the relationships. And this is what the early church was talking about was fellowship, relationships. Not just fellowship, we have a potluck and we eat together. But fellowship where you really open up your heart. Spiritual community needs people that are open and honest about life that, okay, we drop our masks. And that's hard. Because one of the things a small group has to have for people to open up and share what's really going on in their heart is you have to have strict, ruthless confidentiality. You don't share what goes on in that group and what someone shares with anyone else. Not with your prayer list over on the other side of the country and, you know, North Carolina or Maine or whatever. You don't tell anybody. You keep it in the group because if I share my struggles and then I read about it on the Internet, I'm not happy. So we have to have strict confidentiality because people need to feel safe in order to share and be open. And then somebody has to initiate by being open about their life in your group. Take a chance. We also find out that the fellowship of the early church involved worship. Now, where do I get that? When it says breaking of bread, they went together and they had, we know from 1 Corinthians 11, they had meals together. And when they had this fellowship, which involved eating, they also, often breaking of bread in 1 Corinthians 11, involved a communion time. Because remember, it talked about here some excesses going on. Some of you show up drunk. Some of you eat all the food, and there's nothing left for the others who come later. Because fellowship wasn't just, we're going to have a once a quarter potluck. They regularly took meals together, and when they broke bread, they had communion, because that's what chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians was talking about, is don't go into the communion table drunk or having gluttonized yourself and left somebody else hungry. You know, that's not a communion service. So what that means, though, by implication is they got together, They shared meals, and a part of that meal was they had communion. And there wasn't even an ordained priest to administer it. Imagine that. Because it was a fellowship activity. We've made it into a sacrament, and we've elevated it to a point where only certain people can dispense it. But they didn't seem to have that limitation in the early church. They broke bread. They practiced communion regularly and worshiped because they would remember each of those meals, not just by praying, thank you for the food, but by remembering Jesus' death and what he did for them. And so it was a, our bond is Jesus Christ. We're together because of what he did. And so when we fellowship, we need to remember that as a central piece, at least the early church did. So number two on your outline, small groups include fellowship and worship. Your group might have a time of singing. You might have a, you could do readings. You could do other creative ways of worship because worship isn't just about singing, right? Worship is lots of different ways that we remember and proclaim who God is. So worship, do you have that kind of fellowship time? Do you have friends, first of all, that you could share life with? Does your small group share openly and confidentially? Do you have people that if you had a crisis that came up, you could call in the middle of the night and not get the kind of response Adele Gabori got? 
Like, don't call me again. I'll quit answering my phone. Because that's a hard thing when you feel like somebody's there depending on you, isn't it? And yet that's what God calls us to do, to bear up with one another, to be with one another. Do you have someone that you can lean on in that way? Because we need to live life together. Well, number three, teaching, interactive teaching, fellowship and worship, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and then it says to prayer. Prayer also is an element that bound them together as a community. Now, how in the world does that work? Because we often have this really anemic view of prayer. To be honest, we think, you know, prayer, you know, you just recite a few things. And, you know, I remember once when we had a whole, we were in Egypt and we had our staff and we had this whole morning of prayer and a couple of the staff members, that was a new thing, just like, how do you pray for three hours? I I hardly can pray for three minutes without running out of things. But three hours, I mean, you go through your little shopping list of God, I need this and give that and help that person. And pretty soon, you know, you have to actually spend time with God. And, you know, but if you are a person who's really entered into deep prayer, you go, wow, you only did it for three hours? I mean, people go for whole weeks, a week-long prayer retreat, and they say just amazing things happen after the first few days of silence in prayer. That prayer can be vibrant. Prayer can be alive, not just a, a anemic drudgery, but a vibrant, healing, connecting Activity when we put the Holy Spirit in the middle and let him speak to us and speak the things that God lays on our heart. So number three, small groups include vibrant prayer. So does your small group have vibrant prayer? Do you share personal requests about your life or are your prayer requests mostly about your cousin's neighbor's cat going to the vet tomorrow? Vibrant prayer shares struggles it shares what God is doing in your life right now. Yes, we praise him for salvation 40 years ago, but what's he done lately that you want to share in prayer? So small groups, interactive teaching, fellowship and worship and prayer. And let's go and look to the next verse. The early church's response to these three, four activities. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And what would it take for you to feel awe toward God? Do you need a miracle, a healing, something else? What would make you be in awe? Because, you know, you can be around lots of healing and lots of dramatic things happening, but, you know, Israel saw that in the desert, didn't they? The Red Sea parted, water came out of rocks, Uh, A whole group of quail came in and dropped on their camp to give them meat. Bread was every morning, was on the plants with the manna. And they still kept not being in awe of God. They still lost it, even though there was all kinds of miracles going on around them. So what would it take for us to be in awe of God? What would it take for us to change the lives of those inside and outside these church walls. What do we want from God? Because the early church was seeing pretty dramatic results, wouldn't you agree? So what commands our focus captures our heart? 
what do you focus on? Let me give you an example of, of what we focus on, because I find I miss a lot of things. I get over-focused on things. So, for instance, in house cleaning, I hate clutter. I really need to know where my papers are, where documents are, where things are that I need. And when, you know, there's clutter and they get pushed and moved around, then, you know, I get, well, annoyed, just a little bit. Now, I can walk on the kitchen floor and my shoes stick to the floor and until I actually come out of my shoes, I don't notice they're sticky on the floor. I want to know where my stuff is and how well it's organized. Now, Karen, on the other hand, she can put up with the clutter, but if there is one molecule of sticky on that floor, she will find it and everything will stop in her world and she will get out the mop and it will come up. There will be no sticky on her floors. Thank you for that witness, Shannon. But nobody amened mine. I don't care what's going on there. Not fair. Now, that's as bad as the illustration when I said I got a rag and wiped something off the floor and put it back in the sink and all the women went, because <gasps> that's what my wife does. She cares about dirt and sticky. Because that's her focus. My focus is on, you know, order and structure, and I can live in sloth. Other than the order and the structure, I don't care. And, you know, well, we argue about how often should the sheets be washed. I did a poll of, of young moms, and, you know, they, they agreed that it doesn't have to be done every week. And then the news said that you should do it every week. And it's like, come on. In Egypt, the water was so chlorinated, you didn't have very many washings before it destroyed whatever you washed. Anyway, we all have our focus, don't we? So what's your life focus? What thing captures your heart in your, in your life? What thing, like as you stop and you're, you're, you're laying there trying to go to sleep, what is your mind meditating on? Because that might be what's captured your heart. Where are we focused? Because the early church, they were focused on what God was doing in their midst. And yes, there were signs and wonders, but there were changed lives. So what captures your focus? If teaching and fellowship and communion and prayer, when they become routine and boring to us, what's that say about our focus? And what would it take for those things that the early church practiced to capture our focus? Well, the last few verses we have in 44 through 46, first verse 44 says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, a lot of people have misconstrued this passage, but I want to set a little bit of a context of what was going on. And this still happens in the Middle East, by the way. So someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, their Jewish community wasn't very happy about that. And when it said, like, remember the, the guy that got healed, uh, that got put down in the water, and, and the angel would stir the water, and, and the, he, he got healed, and they asked him, you know, who did this? And he said, Jesus, and, and they kept asking him later, and they threw him out of the synagogue, it says. And you think, oh, well, it doesn't get to, he'll go to another synagogue. Well, there wasn't another synagogue. But it wasn't just, you didn't get to go to church. You lost your business, you lost family, you were shunned, you were excommunicated, and you were like invisible to the world. And so 
you would become poor. You would lose everything. Like a Muslim that becomes a Christian today, they are often, if they're not killed, which doesn't always happen like you might read, but they do get shunned. They do find that no one wants to be their friend and nobody goes to their business anymore. And they become a Christian. It costs them mightily. And that's what happened in the early church. They were destitute. So the church had people who had affluence that we find in reading the story before we get to the Ananias and Ananias and Sapphira part, is that they sold their property. Those who had said, you know, these people are starving. I'm going to sell what I have, or at least some of what I have, and I'm going to give it to them because they need it, and God's doing a mighty thing. And so it was a dramatic thing. And so number four, small groups include uncommon generosity. And that might not just be sharing food or sharing money if somebody needed it, but it might be sharing you, yourself, your presence, your heart, your time, unlike the opening story. And we think, well, that just doesn't happen like it did in the early church. And so I don't know if this video clip is going to work. I haven't showed one ever in this church, but um, what do you think, Mark? Are we, have we tested it? We're going to give it a try. So let me set the scene before you click on it. This is a movie you've all, most of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life. It's like the number one Christmas movie that's out there. And the ending is what I want to show you because you remember the story if you don't remember the movie or you've never seen it. George Bailey is falsely accused of stealing money and it was a massive amount for him, like $8,000, but for him in that era, that was a massive amount, a couple years salary or more. And so he's destitute. He thinks, I can't. This is horrible. I've lost it. I'm ruined. Uh, Why was I even born? What if I had never been born? And most of the movie is about what life looked like if George Bailey had never been born. And then the angel takes him all around to show him how horrible the town would have been without him. And then we get to this last scene where he's happy, he's alive, he's excited for just being alive and that his life has really mattered. And then the people of the town that George has meant so much to respond to George. And let's see. Imagine having that kind of community. When you're in trouble, people were giving their life savings because George had meant so much. That's an example of community. Can we have that kind of community? Could we do something like that? Verse 46 of Acts 2 says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So thousands of people, brand new, and they're still togetherness. And it says they had sincere hearts. Sincere means smooth and unencumbered hearts. There's a freedom. Imagine they were living out Jesus' prayer in John 17 for one, that they would be one as we are one, Father. The early church built community in two settings, You notice in this verse, there are two places, two locations. The temple courts. The temple courts, this is the outer courts of the temple where the Gentiles were allowed because a whole bunch of these converts are Gentiles. And it was a big, large, open area where thousands could gather and hear the apostles' teaching, hear testimonies, share. And so it was a big group. It was the large group gathering of the church. But it says also they met house to house. They met in their homes. And so they had small groups. 
Because, you know, they didn't have great big houses then like we do. Well, most of them didn't. And so they would meet maybe in little houses where you could get five or six or seven people. And so it was a large group. Then it was a small group. And in fact, in a few decades, the church would only meet in small groups because it wasn't safe for them to meet in a large group. They would meet in catacombs and caves and hidden in small homes like China does now. And so the church grew exponentially with small groups. They didn't have the great big group meeting. We have the large group meeting. This is our large group meeting. But the church grew on the back of small group ministry. And I'd like to suggest that's a critical ministry for a church to consider. They shared their possessions. They shared their hearts. In the Connecting Church, Randy Frazee lists three problems in American society. He says, individualism, isolation, and consumerism. Today, people change jobs, they change neighborhoods, they even change spouses on a regular basis. Small groups that really open up and really share and have this kind of community is one of the best ways to push back on those trends. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The people noticed the favor of all the people. They noticed the genuine community. They saw something different and attractive about this community that was rooted in these small groups. So are you a part of a small group? Is it something you're open to exploring? I'll close with this story. There was a monastery. It was in decline. The older monks were getting along in years, and they weren't able to persuade any of the young men to join their order. So the abbot decided he would go and talk with a local rabbi, see what suggestions the rabbi might have. What can we do to grow our order? We're about to die. They talked at great length, and just as the abbot was about to leave, the rabbi says to him, one of you is the Messiah. So the abbot goes back and he tells all the other monks that he said one of us is the Messiah, and all of a sudden the guys, the men start treating each other with this profound respect and profound humility, just in case one of them really was the Messiah. Now, this monastery was located in a very lovely little beautiful forest, and people would come and picnic on the lawn and wander around on the wooded trails and go into the little chapel and meditate. But these people began to sense this extraordinary aura of something they couldn't explain. It was just this peaceful feeling that they wanted to be around. They could feel the the respect the monks had for each other. And it was tremendously attractive. And without really understanding why they would bring friends and other people, it became this gathering place, all because the atmosphere had become supernatural. Something there was attracting other people, something supernatural. And soon some of the younger men came, started to ask the monks about what was going on in the the monastery. And one of them asked to join. And then another one asked, and later another one, After that, in only a few years, the monastery was revitalized with some younger members who became part of a thriving order, a center of light and spirituality because of the unity and the fellowship that they built. Chihuahua E. Free Church can be a center of light and spirituality. We can be that kind of an influence that we can have on on Stevens County... (laughs) 
when our relationships, we bring people, and I think small groups is one of the best places to start people that are exploring, people that are new Christians, to learn about Jesus and talk about Jesus and have people support them. So are you willing to share in that connection? If you're not in a small group, are you willing to join one or start one? There may not be enough small groups for all of us to join, but we can start new ones, can't we? We need people willing to be leaders. So I would suggest and ask in the pocket in the seat in front of you, there's a little card for prayer requests. If you're interested in being in a small group or interested in starting a small group, and you don't have to be a master teacher, you just have to be a facilitator that can kind of help people discuss. You don't have to have been to seminary or Bible college. If you're willing to be a facilitator or you want to join a small group, write it on your card. The offering box, oh, still all the way over in the other side of the room. One day we'll get it here. Anyway, out there somewhere is an offering box. Soon there will be one back there too. Oh, it's on the wall. Oh, my gosh. Where's Mike? I, he, <laughs> he did it. I was looking through the door and I missed it. Okay, so there's one there. And uh, there's one out there in the, the space where many of you looked and were, were dismayed last week when it wasn't there. So in addition to your offering, put the little card there that says, I would be interested in joining a small group. And I hope some of you would say, I would be interested if you would help me and train me and give me some pointers on how to facilitate a small group and we can grow our church. Let's pray. Lord God, we're kind of trying to figure out how all this fits in our busy schedules. How do I make room for a small group? And yet, Lord, again, we want to live out community together, live life together, to not just add more events into our schedule that make us even more stressed and busy, running around on the outer rim of the, of the wheel like we talked about last week, but help our small groups to help us live in the hub and we become less stressed and less busy, less cluttered because we're encouraging one another in how to simplify our life. So Lord, open us up. Expand the number of small groups. Expand the leaders, the people willing to facilitate those groups so we can really be ready for the people you will bring to us in the future in this church, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.